Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into the game we all love. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles and we're delighted to see back on the podcast, like Spanish football expert, podcaster, presenter. You know the lineup is the dandy Catalan, Mr. Graham Hunter. <laughs> That's an adaptation. Never been called that before. Thank you very much. Nice <laughs> to talk to you. And of course, with Graham, uh, Graham's presence uh, greatly appreciated, uh, we're going to focus mainly on La Liga and Spanish football and what's been happening in Spain. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've spoken very much at length in the pod about what's been happening in the UK in the Premier League. Graham, what's the general mood? Because you guys have been in a much more serious lockdown situation than, than we have in England and the UK for the last four weeks or so. Um, I mean, for a start, and I'm not being flippant, but anyone who knows the amount of content that goes out in the Spanish sports press on a daily basis. I mean, I just can't even imagine how the, the newspapers are surviving, never mind the general public. Well, it, no, it's, it's not it's not flipping at all. Ian. And, and you know, the, the, the three of us know, and, and presumably large tracts of your audience know, that one of the special uh, attractions in Spain, and certainly it was a small part of the reason that I moved here in 2002, You'll, you'll remember it well. Um, I don't think uh, Duncan, you and I knew, knew each other, certainly not to the same extent, but you know, you, we'd known each other for many years before I moved to, to Spain and, and we'd worked together in, in various different trips in, in Spain. And it, it's commonplace now to talk about it, but from 1982, when I first came to Spain for football to, to follow Scotland in the World Cup, the enormous impact of there being regular daily football papers um, was extremely attractive to me about what football culture in Spain was all about. And particularly if you want to be a reporter, a storyteller of football in Spain, then you become acquainted with and, and a fan of the, the Spanish football press very, very quickly. And certainly in the 80s and 90s, it was extremely distinct from what we've grown to know in the UK and that they were um, dedicated wholly to, to, to tactics and to formations and to interviews. And they were extremely well informed because all of them attended um, training daily. And therefore, whenever we looked at them, they had an entirely different viewpoint than even the most um, well-informed UK journalists had. Because if you go to training and see things with your own eyes, you communicate completely differently even if you self-edit a little bit, as some loyal journalists would have done to the, the club in their region. And, and, you know, if you go to Seville, there, there's a daily football 
But if you go to Valencia, there's a daily football there. If you go to Vigo, to the Basque Country, people know the Central Four, two based in um, Madrid, Ass and Marca, two based in Catalonia, Mundo Deportivo and Sport. They've the reason I did that little exposition of of their existence is that there is a culture number one where the government said that newspaper kiosks could stay open and therefore it was feasible to go out and buy a paper secondly there is a culture in in spain whereby although it's been desperately hard for these organizations with a fallen ad revenue particularly and a fallen content the 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 two aspects that i think have helped is one that the, the spanish public is is really dedicated to buying and consuming and sharing opinions about its um, its pretty large family of sports papers, if you want to call them, almost ninety percent dominated by football. And I think it's it's also struck me that in a football culture which has has taken time to be as um, not advanced, but in the UK for a long time, particularly this, the Premier League has been more proactive in modernisation and in, in self-marketing. And the clubs in Spain have taken time to be as competitive. Yet during this crisis, they've been, I, I think, nothing short of remarkable in terms of generating content. They've been really quick to say the um, our audience really matters um the sporting press really matters and therefore what they've done is they've churned out and, and almost without exception hosts of interviews players at home able to communicate with a, a medium whether it be radio um less so television but radio and and the newspapers there's been a stream of um coaches will talk players will talk um, fitness coaches will talk a president will talk um, there's been um, a series of videos or photos now. Players with time on their hand have re- time on the hands have released. This is what I'm doing to stay fit. Or in the case of one club, Leganes has been making its um, its fitness sessions, which have been led by video conferencing, fitness cultural. I, I don't know the technology people that use like, like everybody calls the machine that you know cleans your carpet a Hoover, even though it's not a Hoover. That's an individual brand. People talk about Zoom all the time. So whether it is or isn't Zoom, Zoom-style broadcasts between the Lega players and the fitness coaches have been kind of available for the general public, particularly Lega fans, I suppose, <laughs> to, to, to join in. To Barca, Barca coach Kiki Setien had a, had a sort of 40-person video conference meeting on Monday, um, which wasn't you know made public because there's been stuff said in there that they probably aren't ready to be consumed by the media, but the images of that mass video conference, and there were some interesting things about it, um, that was made available too. So if 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 I ignore saying to you, Ian, in, in response to your question, that I haven't heard of journalists who are fearful for their position, that it, that it hasn't been difficult for the, the, it's not the print media because they're now, you know, they're also vastly present online and bought online and not just free. If I was to say to you that they haven't suffered because of the crisis, that would be wrong. But the overall impact of 
we are now a month, or well, a month and a half on complete confinement. Footballers haven't been able to go out and so you can all go out for a run if you want to. Footballers in Spain haven't been able to do that. That's, that's completely prohibited. So the impact on them has been less than would have been the case in, in when we all started, when newspapers were far less modern, far less reactive. And in this situation, particularly with our internet, uh, would, would have suffered brutally. It's not situation normal, but they've coped, in my judgment, admirably. Just to give an example, Graham, I'm sure you remember this, but uh, you and I were covering the European Under-21 uh, Championship Finals in Barcelona in 1996. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, that was obviously um, the precursor to Euro 96 in, in England. I remember we were sitting having a, a probably a Cortado and a Caña, reading through the Spanish press, and then Marca had a whole spread on every item of equipment that the, the squad were taking to England, the senior squad were taking to England, including the amount of socks they were taking, the amount of anti-inflammatory spray yeah. that was being packed <laughs> in the kit. And we, I, we were just sitting there amazed by the amount I, of detail. I honestly agree with you. Do you not all the listeners will remember the fact. I mean, st still it's the case that, you know, in the UK, in the days leading up to a really big match, you won't always get lineup predictions. But, when, you know, I'm the oldest of the three of us, but, you know, when we were all growing up, certainly when I was growing up, no attention at all was paid to what formation a team might be playing in, in, in the weekend's big game or who might compose the 11. Um, you got a list of maybe you got told who was fit and who was. Now in Spain, since I first encountered that press, which was 82, so I've never been in Spain before that, the culture was we need to know how will, how will the team line up in terms of the, the, the formation this week? Does the coach stick to his regular... 4-2-3-1, or will it be 4-4-2 this week? But also, exactly who will fill each position and why, and not just because, you know, Juan's got a hamstring and Diego doesn't. Um, it, and, and that, the impact to me, like you said about the, the equipment detail and a beautiful graphic, um, the impact of me about, oh, okay, you can do it like that, can you? And, and the UK media had, had, had literally... I mean, you still see it now when you see Rave from the Grave Television from the UK. They'll list the 11 names are out on the pitch at the beginning of a match, but it won't be in formation. And, and newspapers um, will, will give you a list of names again, but it'll just be, as the club gave it to them, more alphabetical. And it, is, it was, in the, certainly in the 80s when I first encountered it, it was mind-boggling. Ah, this can be done properly. Fantastic. And, and you're right about that equipment graphic and, and the, the newspapers over there because they had page over here so I had pages and pages to fill far sooner than the UK began to think and, and this is obviously the, the case in, in you know to, to a less degree in Portugal but certainly to a high degree in France and Holland and Germany and Italy the newspapers would dedicate to, to massive amount of print space to exactly what you're talking about graphics of various nature that one looked really good, were made to look fantastic. But two, they were able to to glean the information to, to bring new realms of what we can tell you about your club, your national team. And I genuinely thought it was utterly fantastic. And while there's been a a change, there's been a gravitation. You know, if if 
that if the world is increasingly homogeneous since you know since our career started, that's true of Spain's football media moving more towards the polemic, more towards the British tabloid style that frankly I enjoy so little. Um, and, and there has been a distinct change about um, cross-reporting in Spain so that if something makes the press somewhere else, it'll be reported in Spain in a way that there used to be more of a filter. So things change and, and even out, and, and it's not all heavenly, but you're right, you, you, your 1996 example is, is, is one, one jewel in the crown of what I thought was a central reason for me coming to learn this football culture. Graham, if I take you to, to one of the interviews you, you, you're talking about uh, that's been happening in Spain, one I read yesterday with um, Ivan Rakitic, which I think was mm. done as a, if not a Zoom video, then a, a Skype interview. And, and Rakitic spoke in, in real detail about what it was like um, training from home and being with his family and ed educating his children. But also spoke, I think, in a lot of detail about one of the topics we want to talk about today, which is where Barcelona are as a club and, and their transfer policy and the, the, the kind of divide between uh, the players and the board and, and, and talking about his personal situation. This is a story we, you know, we detailed in the transfer podcast last summer and that Rakitic was offered to Manchester United, Paris Saint-Germain, and, uh, and resisted the move. And, and he, he was pressed on it a few times and he eventually came up with a memorable phrase talking about what might happen this summer. It was, he said, I'm not a bag of potatoes. Um, Know, kind of warning Barcelona that they can't just decide what they want to do with him. It's that he's he has a contract and and he he prefers being in Barcelona for for family purposes. And um, sounds like that is going to be an, a a complicated part of what is turning into a very complex jigsaw of of transfer problems and. Um, disputes between the players and the board and, and disputes internally within the board with a number of resignations in, in, uh, in recent weeks at, at the club. Yeah, if we start, Duncan, with um, Rakitic, I, I, I've really not enjoyed um, at all the way in which um, he has been uh, increasingly badly portrayed by really hardline online trolls and the way in which the club decided from last summer onwards um, we can either um, basically kick his arse out the door or treat him in such a way that he'll see he's got to, to leave. For every single one of the seasons since he joined in 2014, He's been centrally important for Barca for one reason or, or another. And I, I thought that, you know, when the judges made um, Modric Ballon d'Or, based upon largely, I thought, his, his World Cup campaign, if they were judging a World Cup alone, Rakitic's World Cup um, when Croatia were finalists and lost to France, I, I thought there was a hair's breadth between how Rakitic performed and how Modric performed. And with the increasing dependence of Sergio Busquets having a bodyguard on the pitch to to do the 
the chasing and the harassing and the and to be near him for those in, it, intuitive first touch passes that that's been Rakitic. So under Valverde, Rakitic effectively played in a double pivote um, system, which Barcelona are not accustomed to not accustomed to needing because they play one central pivote and two creative players on either one on either side. And because Busquets' athletic pace is diminished so dramatically, and and, and also I, I don't think it's unfair to say his 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 willingness to do the real blue collar dirty work in that position, and the fact that he doesn't have Xavi and Iniesta next, and all those things have combined that he needed Rakitic. And Rakitic's form in playing that position, and I have to stress for the clubs that are looking to to try and capture him now. Rakitic's ability to to duplicate the Busquets function when Busquets wasn't in the team suggests to me that he's he remains a, a superb superb world class footballer. Um, a lot of people don't see the value, um, and I think it's also the case that because Boston have got themselves such a mess, both in terms of their their financial outlay and the debt they owe. Secondly, the return they've had for their financial outlay. And thirdly, the athletic performance of the team. All those three strands need to be woven together until you come to the conclusion that Barcelona are, are seriously vulnerable. And it, it was patent that when he began to be dropped by Valverde at the beginning of this season, um, two, two things were evident. One, it was a general instruction from the club that if Rakitic could be treated like a sack of potatoes, as you quoted him accurately, Duncan, then maybe they could scare him out of the club. And the second thing was when um, Rakitic um, didn't play, Busquets tended to be more exposed and Barcelona suffered. So, I, you know, Rakitic isn't being treated in a way that all three of us have seen football clubs treat once cherished footballers like Muck in order to bully them out of a club. And I choose both Muck and bully as, as words I, I, I fully believe in. Each of us could quote situations where we've seen a club effectively turn on somebody that was extremely important and beloved. Say, so, well, it, it's expediency, but, you know, we're going to, we're going to boot your arse until you, you get out that door because we need the money or we want that player. And, and, Rakitic hasn't been quite treated that badly, but he's, in my opinion, he has been treated like there's a moneda de cambio is a phrase here in Spain, where you see a player who's used in a swap operation, and the, the media call it that the player's treated like loose change, and Rakitic is right. I think I think he's within his rights, and if were it me, and judging one of you two were either of you in his situation. Um, you'd speak out and you would say, you you would point out that you're not simply a, 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 another non-physical resource. These people are human beings. And I'll, I'll close by saying one of the things that's difficult in Rakitic's situation, Duncan, and a lot of people in football sneer at this, but I don't. You know, he, he, one, he does have a, a contract. Two, he wants to stay. The lifestyle is very good here. It's not pejorative to say that he's well-paid and happy with it. But the fundamental thing is that his wife is from Seville. Um, he, 
cherishes what she thinks about her situation their situation i don't know if that's a euphemism or not but she doesn't want to go she thinks that compared to andalusia barcelona is the polar north and she won't move any further north in europe and i know in football it's a dumb thing to sneer at wives who seem to rule the destination of a player and many many football wives have simply had to put up with a troubadour life of moving from city to city or country to country. But in Rakitic's case, they're happy. She doesn't want to move further north. And it will take something extraordinary if Barcelona are able to push him out towards a, a, a destination further north in Europe. And, and she changes her mind and, and says yes. So, one, I think he's right to fight for you know his contract and his, his ability to say. And two, his, the phrase he uses is accurate for the way the club are treated. Now, Graham, you mentioned internet trolls there right at the beginning of the discussion about Rakitic. Those resignations from the Barcelona board, it's, I think it was two vice presidents, one of whom I believe was Josep Maria Bartomeu's kind of anointed successor. You're right. And, and four directors. Part of that resignation was um, a, a claim that the board had been involved in employing a social media company i3 ventures specifically to attack not only opposition players but their own players is rakitic one of the players who's been cited as a, as a as a a potential target of the of i3 ventures given that he is as we've been discussing a player that barcelona have been trying to shift out well you're right to make the, the the leap between internet trolling and the resignations and an ongoing investigation as to whether uh, a crime, let me say, uh, do I mean a crime? Whether actions have been taken that contravene Barcelona's own statutes is the most accurate way to say that. So Rakitic is savaged on the internet um, by those, by um, social media accounts who claim to be Barca fans and in the majority are based overseas. The, the spread of accusations about this company's role in besmirching footballers has tended to focus on Victor Font, who looks like the most likely next president. He's out with the club but he is standing as um, presidential candidate for the elections, which are which can't take place later than summer 2021 pandemic, notwithstanding. Um, Leo Messi, Gerard Piquet, um, certain media. And I think that um, I have yet to see direct accusations that Rakitic has been targeted, but in the, this has been a very good piece of journalism by two specific, uh, one radio station principally, which began saying several weeks ago, this is a fact, this has happened. This company has been employed, its remit is to besmirch um, people who the current president, Josep Maria Bartomeu, thinks are threatening his 
his regal pros progress. And it, it was denied at first, then it was accepted that the company is, uh, has been hired, then the company said, well, we weren't smirching Emily, and now it's been alleged by Emily Russo, the one that you correctly pointed out, had been on the board since 2015, but had only recently been made a vice president and, and, and relatively recently had been anointed as the continuity candidate so that it, the idea was he would stand um, to summer 21 against Victor Fong in order to continue Bartomeu's ideas and to be Bartomeu's anointed candidate. And he, when he left, and um, you know, for the benefit of not just your lawyers, but for the benefit of fairness, he left saying somebody's been putting their hand in the till. Barcelona immediately denied that, immediately said, if you have these accusations, why have you named names? And immediately threatened legal action. And then Emily Rousseau, in the last 24 hours, hasn't uh, just repeated his allegations, he's augmented them and said that one of the things he has proof of, he claims, is that Barcelona's board managed to break down the payments to this company that you named into um, slices and, and to disperse them, get them through statutory controls. And this is all getting a little bit red tapey. But the, the finger pointing is about um, alleged deliberate besmirching of people that were causing the current president displeasure. And there is an ongoing investigation which certainly has accounted for the six resignations and the threat of more. There are certainly three more who are firmly believed to be considering the position. Barcelona had a reshuffle on Monday night of their board. The board isn't fully core at the moment. They're, they're, they're lacking at least one new director, something that's this is set against the back backdrop of Spain being one of the countries in the world where the most people are affected by the COVID virus, where the death per um, infection rate is, judging by other countries, is too high, where we've been on complete lockdown, a vastly different situation from Britain and Ireland for a month and a half. Set against that backdrop, this is, you know, it's... It, it feels to me not just ignominious, it, it, it feels to me utterly irresponsible that this, that this ridicule is taking place in the public eye and that increasingly, as the strands are pulled, the current president is being denuded. And I have to say, it, it, it reflects extraordinarily badly on President Bartomeu, how he's run the club. And, just my final phrase, I think in your question you talked about the, the division between the the board and, and the squad. That was certainly the case in that Leo Messi has twice now, in his role as captain, not in his role as superstar, but in his role as captain, has twice now publicly pointed to things that he believes are um, contrary to good faith and that are damaging in terms of the relationship between the squad, the board, and the board's principal employees. And, and there is division, there is a lack of trust. And looking at it, it, it right now the club is in some state of ridicule. Two, two, two questions, Graham, quickly. One, 
you, you mentioned that three other directors are believed to be considering their resignations. Would that force the presidential election having taken... Um, not, not, not automatically. The brief answer is that if the if three more left, it would be, in statutory terms, absolutely vital to get back up to a full representation again. The number which is in the statutes, I think, is 15. And what, what would be able to happen is that the president could... Um, engage and ac accept new directors if he could find them. Secondly, right now we we live in extraordinary times, um, such that you know the convening of elections right now would be impossible because the statutes yes. don't allow it all to be done by electronic vote. They they just don't, and and therefore people, you know, coming to to vote is is prohibited by law at the moment. In the state of alarm. So. I don't believe either that it's advisable for Barcelona to try to go to early elections, although there are many people who would, in principle, want them. Um, and I, I just don't think it's legally possible. So it, it, my opinion at the moment, Duncan, is that is that it's unless he resigns, uh, which would currently, today as we speak, surprise me, um, then Bartomeu looks at the moment likely through a, a wide combination of circumstances to, to, to continue his reign until the end of its mandate in 21. But each day seems to be, as I say, tugging at strands that are denuding him. So who knows? How, how does Bartomeu manage to get in a position of such fracture with Barcelona's most important individual, most important in, in player? In my opinion, Duncan, it's 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 not an uncommon answer. I think that when you you reach the top, um, you listen to fewer people. Ego comes into it. Um, the idea, of the combined and opposing and dangerous twin ideas of, I am going to make myself a legacy so that I will be known forevermore for this, and. I'm going to do it my way, so it is um, it is palpably mine, this legacy. So whether the the stadium is named after me or this treble is, is called Bartomeu's treble or whatever it might be, that's not an uncommon trait for a leader to, to begin exhibiting um, when they've won an election or when they've sniffed, the, inhaled the heady aroma of power. And the other conflicting idea is that um, I, I'm never wrong and I'm never going to say sorry and, I, and, and it, it's really this is actually, it's not just all about me, but if I think something is right it, it will be right and I I think that the, the specifics you, you, you were talking about, how can it be and I think you can't avoid looking directly at the president to answer that question but secondly it's my opinion that Bartomeu, as vice president to Sandro Rosé, uh, before Sandro Rosé did what we call in Scotland the Midnight Blip, um, that's the kind of president he was. When they when they sent out a general um, multiple choice um, inquest to their fans about a wide variety of things, they tucked in in about position number 52, um, would you be opposed to it if the club were to sell Leo Messi? Now, this is several years ago now, but it was when Bartomeu was vice president and Sandro Jose was president. And I've always argued that 
to do proper risk assessment for those who, who like to think about having thought everything through before making the decisions, you have to um, take on board the unthinkable. Proper risk assessment says, okay, um, it's 2014, 15, 2016, whichever you want to call it. Um, would we be better off asking a club for 300 million for Leo Messi? And I think there was an episode recently when one of the, Gary Cook explained how City got in a position of mistakenly bidding several hundred million for Leo Messi and the Premier League called and said, are you sure? All that. There was a stage at which um, Rousseau and Bartomeu thought, okay, let's just risk assess what would happen in terms of damage to our reputation, damage to our football prospects, if we took in 300 million, 400 million, whatever. Now, so all I'm trying to establish is that Bartomeu is, is somebody, uh, and the amount that Barcelona are paying uh, Leo Messi, I can't honestly say that I know for certain, and I'm not ashamed of that, because the, the complexity of how much Leo Messi is paid, in which manner he's paid, and the, uh, the, the trip switches for that sum going up and down, is infinitely complex. Uh, but I think Leo Messi earns more or less 100 million a year before you start taking in sponsorships. And Barcelona's component of that includes you know, paying his tax. And when you're in brutal financial situation, and when you're looking at um, the fact that Leo Messi can walk away from his contract for free at the end of each season, which he can, Bartomeu is, is not somebody who is who is utterly allied to the idea that Leo Messi can't leave under my watch because he signed a contract. He's allowed the codicil in the contract to say, yes, you can walk away for free at the end of the con contract. It's every season if you want to. And therefore, as soon as, Duncan, you know that, if you are the chief executive of any organisation, and you are forced into a negotiating position where you actually sign off and saying, okay, you are the most important thing here, the most important employee, the most important element, the most important subcontractor, but you're in such a situation of power that I, I will sign off on that, that, that sub-clause. Your mind automatically trip switches into a position of thinking, well, one day that asset might not be here. And that's not a position that um, Rosé was ever in, that Laporta was ever in. But it's a fact. And therefore, in my opinion, um, Bartomeu's actions and his decision tree and the degree to which he's restricted the number of people, the diversity of, of opinions that he listens to, has, has meant that actions are taken without thinking first about Messi as the squad leader as well as the spiritual leader of this football organisation. Um, he's going to be incorporated in the thinking or will be careful about how this might appear to him. And, frankly, uh, the degeneration of the the respect, you know, we often talk about trust, the, 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 the players, irrespective of occasional blips of dramatic proportion at Anfield or wherever in Rome, this is a squad of footballers which has gone on winning remorselessly long beyond the date it should have done if you look 
with a microscope at the way in which Barcelona is run as a sporting entity. In other words, caliber of people above them is in converse proportion to the um, attitude, behavior, and winning ability of an aging squad. And if you or I or you or the listeners were in that squad, we'd be looking at the people who employ us and thinking, you're not our measure. You're not even close. In terms of the football side, Graham, which you alluded to to the worst end of um, your answer there, still looking to, about how to solve a problem like Coutinho, Dembele as well, maybe even Griezmann, all signings made on Bartomeu's watch, uh, all signings perhaps which certainly did not or have yet to reap the benefits and value uh, all compared to the, the money which was invested in bringing them to camp now. In this changed, very changed environment, uh, that we will see when football finally comes out of hibernation. Um, the value of those players, the value of the contracts will have decreased. Are Barcelona going to be able to sell them? Will they sell them, given the situation they find themselves in the devaluation of the market? And if they don't, are they asking for more problems than, than they can handle? I, th- I think the answer would be slightly different if... Um... For example, Coutinho and Dembele were looked upon, irrespective of the financial impact on football organisations of this pandemic crisis. If Coutinho was still thought about the way that he was thought about broadly when he left Liverpool, if Dembele was thought about the way he was thought about in his in the period when he racked up games for Barcelona and, and they showed that he's extraordinary, which he is, then you could answer your question differently because there are some clubs who aren't automatically going to be affected by this crisis. The clubs, like for example, Chelsea have utterly redrawn how they want to spend, how they want to wash the faces financially. But there's no doubt that Abramovich still has the power to, to wake up one morning and go, nah, I'm interested again. There's 150 million. Now, I don't think he will. Chelsea aren't run like that at the moment, but he has that power. I imagine the city have almost unending financial power, so do Paris Saint-Germain. And if you take financial fair play and argue that there's a possibility that that might need to be readdressed or, or relaxed, depending on the impact. On it. Broadly, if Coutinho and Dembele were, had been performing at a level, then maybe there'd still be ma- means for Barcelona to recoup some or all of the money. At the moment, it, it's a double whammy for, for Bartomeu, and I think that the, the improper running of the sporting side of the club just proves sod's law. If you if you risk too much, sod's law is that just when you've risked more than you can afford to lose, something will go wrong. Now, it's as simple as that. And their their outlays were badly judged. They were overinflated. Even had the players come and punch their absolute weight, that actual outlays made it look like Barcelona were the weak partner in the negotiations. You know, they they didn't negotiate or buy or judge the worth of the players properly. And now if you look at how Coutinho has fitted in at Bayern Munich, it's it's helped, but has he been as impactful as he seemed to be at Liverpool? Has his value gone back up to where it was when he was bought for Barcelona? No. 
both clubs have the same monetary layout. No, Barcelona's task right now, Ian, as far as I can judge, is to find a way to refinance themselves. Which in the world, there will always be winners and losers from crises, and there will be corporations that do have more money now than they did before the crisis. That's a fact. The majority won't. Barcelona cannot, in my opinion, expect to recoup their outlay by asking a buyer to come close to or meet the figures that they paid for Coutinho and Dembele, and therefore they're probably going to have to find a way to... Their, 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 their cash flow problem is, in my opinion, big. Um, they are going to be, even though they're on a government support system, the ERTE, they are going to be damaged by the loss of revenue, and they were overextended, and it, their means of using Coutinho and or Dembele, uh, Coutinho specifically because they don't want him, at, and they've got three choices. You either completely retrench your attitude about selling them, and you just go, we'll meet the best of what we've got, and you keep Coutinho and Dembele. Second option is to trade them, it appears to me the far, by far the most likely. And you trade them and you, on the, in a books exercise, you value as highly as you possibly can in amortization the guy that you brought in. You write off more than you thought you were able to about the outlay in the, the, the Frenchman and the Brazilian. And you look to earn money in other ways to cover the gap. It's, you know, steal from Peter to pay Paul. And those three, you know, those options seem to me to be the only way forward for Barcelona because they cannot recoup the money in Coutinho and Dembele. Coutinho because he doesn't look the player that Barcelona thought he was. And while he still patently has good football in him, it will be at a club that doesn't think that he, he's worth the money that Barcelona paid Liverpool. And Dembele could be by now worth double the money that Barcelona paid, even though they vastly overpaid, if he could stay fit. And at the moment, that's completely unproven. His... Um, his injury record and his ability to break down after rehab is deleterious to anybody's belief that even at 22, we're going to see the best of Dembele. That it can be changed. That can be recouped. And I'd have thought that while buyers from for Dembele will not be scarce because clubs will say he had a fantastic injury record at Dortmund. He is an extraordinary footballer if he, when he's got blinkers on and he's fit. And there's some clubs will come in and say, we can, you know, it's Steve Austin and we can rebuild and we have the technology to rebuild and fine. <laughs> we'll give you $6 million. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 you, you thought of that one last night, didn't you? Um, I think you know that that just came to me. It's quite good. To <laughs> if, 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 if you were old enough to remember the $6 million. Oh, absolutely. Man, yeah, you two are, but not everybody will be. <laughs> what... Graham, is the the assessment of the potential economic damage this can do to Barcelona and Real Madrid? We, we had Javier Tebas trying to put numbers on what would happen if the season wasn't restarted uh, recently, and he said he, if, if Spanish clubs don't get back to playing, it could be a billion euros without spectators, 300 million, even if we get back to playing with spectators, 150 million. Is there a sense of, of the, the numbers that it's going to be for the two biggest clubs um, in those three circumstances? I can't put a figure on that for you, Duncan, because, you know, it, it, it's 
um, patently clear that one of the ways in which Barcelona gain a huge amount of money is the Champions League. Now, that doesn't touch on the overall economic machine, which Bartomeu and reasonable financial assessors claimed was putting them on route to becoming the first billion-dollar club in, in annual revenue, which became a you know a shiny magpie target from which you know I, I think they lost their way in saying that's the most important thing when it's not. Um, yeah. So, for example, irretrievable Duncan would be the chunk of the annual twenty-five million that Barcelona earn from their museum and tour. So that's a decent amount of money, and that you know that can't be recouped because for over a month, a month and a half now, they haven't had people coming through the turnstiles. Another chunk of the the money you're talking about comes from uh, MediaPro um, because of their you know, purchase of the television rights. Jal Marares, who's you know the equivalent to Tebas in at MediaPro, has said in a recent interview. Until we finish season twenty twenty one, season twenty one twenty two cannot start. Now, I don't think it's quite the case in the UK that the television companies are all powerful, but they're you know they're a dominant muscular force, and um, you can treble or quadruple that here. If Raras is saying that the season must be finished, no matter how that happens in calendar terms then you've got an understanding of how important to MediaPro it is that their outlay is recouped, whether with crowds or without crowds, and that there's televised football to show. So with that understanding, given his interview, there's then you have to factor in he, he is so committed to regaining the, the rights money that he isn't thinking about recalling the tranches of television money that's already been paid. He wants, he's going to insist on the competition being completed. So there's, there's, um, th there are a number of unfathomables right now, uh, including the fact that, you know, affair we were talking about, does the Champions League resume or not? And the draft idea at the moment, as I understand it, is that all domestic competitions that can be finished are finished in June and July. This is by UEFA's volition of their, 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 their best hypothesis. So domestic competitions are finished in June and July and the European competitions which remain to be, club competitions which remain to be finished, are finished during August on, on, a, on, a, on a tight schedule, almost like a league schedule. So, you know, I, I would estimate that so far... Barcelona and the majority of Spain, Spain's clubs have earned in the region of somewhere from 59 to 69, 70 million from the Champions League. And there was much more left to, to be earned. But does the TV pot go up or down? I, I find it incalculable to say to you, Duncan, this is how Real Madrid or Barcelona stand to see their, their accounts affected by the first time you can say, okay, We've now had the remainder of a financial year completed with some form of football back, and here's the damage that's been done. And uh, because there are so many things that we we cannot predict whether they're going to be when they'll restart, 
whether they're going to be completed, whether they'll be completed with or without fans, whether there'll be domestic competition, but no European competition, which I, I still think is a feasible hypothesis, given what we're learning about the spread of the virus and listening rather than to football administrators, listening to specialists on, on you know, pandemics and viruses. There is still a scenario whereby any concept of there being organised football and organised football in front of fans is, is many, many, many months away. But I don't know. I'm a layman simply listening to experts. So to, to, to be a, um, an actuary right now, to be a risk assessor right now, is pff, just burning the circuits of your brain. Let's talk about our Champions League problem, Graham, since you raised it, because it is, I think, the biggest problem that UEFA face here is not only do they have to get the domestic leagues finished, which they have been putting the pressure on all federations throughout Europe not to declare their um, their leagues yeah. finished, even if they yeah. want to, because they want to coordinate the restart of European competition next season and also the conclusion of this year's competition. Yeah. As, it st- as it stands in the Champions League, we have one club through from Spain, one club through from France, one club through from Germany, one club through from Italy. Those can ra- rise um, for each of those countries. And there's, there's none through from England, possibly. Well, there's one in a decent position, Manchester City, to get through. But you're, you're yeah. looking at at least four countries, three of which have been heavily hit by coronavirus and one which has been hit dramatically but seems to have a, a greater degree of control over it all of which would need to be clear of the virus or have some kind of system where football was placed in a special situation where um, players were brought into camps and kept behind closed doors and tested on a regular basis to have anything resembling a normal Champions League where it's played in you know, two legs across both countries. Um, is there really a solution to this? Is, do, do, what are you hearing from UEFA in terms of the most practical way of, of, of bringing what they want to happen to a conclusion and having, having a, a Champions League and a champion for this season? The first thing that I have to say, Duncan, is whether I fail or not, one of the traits I, I hate most in, in general life, but certainly in our profession, is hypocrisy. And it'd be hypocritical of me not to begin by saying, however well any of us research and write, we're... We're not experts in this, and we shouldn't pretend to be, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be. Um, and, and therefore, you know, I, I, I predicate what I'm saying with that because the overriding element in all of this is is safety and well-being. And yeah. it's, it's vital that UEFA and their sponsors and their broadcasters create hypothetical models of what might be able to happen because if there is you know week by week a gradual and then um more rapid diminution of the threat to us all then it would be pretty stupid and a glorious moment comes when the majority of european countries are not only not registering any deaths anymore no further infections and we did at least see Wuhan uh, and major cities in China coming back to something um, approaching normality in recent days. It'd be pretty stupid if they weren't prepared. 
But the only possible way to answer your question, as, as I know you know and Ian knows, and presumably everybody listening knows, is that in this situation whereby your hypothetical model includes, you know, areas where players are, are consistently tested and separated from their families and made to play in some sort of <laughs> virtual football world, which is made not virtual but real, one, all that induces in me is fear because currently today, as you and I talk, we're dealing with um, a type of virus and then an illness which can, for example, Ken Douglas, we'll all be thrilled to know, isn't simply out of hospital, but demonstrably feeling better and getting better. But he was asymptomatic. And I use him as an example because he's one of the most important football men of our lives. And that's, that asymptomatic means that there would have to be, in the hypothesis that we're talking about, where football is played in a kind of hermetically sealed bubble while the rest of society is still groggy and starting to work out how it can operate or maybe not still operating properly. The impossibility of knowing whether you're putting lives at risk means that, to me, there the, the remains, as we speak today, a, a huge degree of improbability about that hypothesis being fulfilled. Now, I, I, I've been known occasionally, once every six or seven years, to be wrong. <laughs> and God, I'd like this to be the year that I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but I am filled with fear. Let's count backwards then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, okay, it wasn't six, six, 16 or 17, because I can't remember the last thing. Look, um, it, 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 imagine this happens and somebody dies. I, I, I don't want to be um, part of that, and we can't go forward with perpetual fear. There will come a time, there has to come a time, when we're properly prepared to recommence professional football. But the idea that it might be somehow a little bit out of step with society's norms cannot be perpetuated. And there's, there are enough halfwits in charge of governments now who aren't listening to experts that we have to be extraordinarily careful when we judge societies are ready to reopen to function properly again, and what and what um, precautions, what not precautions, what absolute fundamental, constant, perpetual changes to our lives, we're all going to have to make that because there are there are informed and intelligent discussions about a potential resurgence of this virus during the winter months of twenty twenty one, and therefore all I'd want, and my fundamental answer to your question about this is, it's right that you have to hypothesise and plan with their members if we can restart the means of restarting and the structure for continuing the tournament should be like X. And X at the moment in their mind is to allow as many or all European nations to complete their domestic programmes in June and July and then to play on a kind of, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, constant weekly basis, the remainder of the European competitions. And if that could be done, with everybody healthy and happy and, and giving us an end to a summer in one of the most brutal years any of us have ever lived through, then fucking hallelujah and, and let me be part of it. 
but there's, there's something that links what you asked about Rakitic and this question. Rakitic said, don't treat me like a sack of potatoes. And we'd be liars if we didn't say here today that there is a tendency within football, and we Rooney, via a friend of ours, Jonathan Northcroft in the Sunday Times, began this um, Football's React to Pandemic uh, chapter by saying that they felt like guinea pigs. There is, and there has been throughout our lifetimes, a tendency for football to treat its players like servants, like goods and chattel, as if they were monetary components, and they fucking aren't. And therefore, however we restart, in whatever situation, it's imperative that either associations, not clubs, and governing bodies do so on the presumption that cleaning up accounts or meeting sponsorship contracts are more important than saying footballers are human beings, parents and brothers and sisters and kids, and albeit that we pay them very well, and albeit that celebrity attaches to them like a sort of ready, ready brick glow, and, and you know, they're, they're fabulously wealthy. They need to be treated like you and I expect to be treated. Therefore, I, I don't imagine there can be zero risk when football starts again. I think that would be infantile to claim. But if there is a restart, then it must be at a time when the general consensus from experts and not the dimwits that we've elected say our best idea is that under these conditions you can restart. And and if that's June, July, August, fantastic. But I'm I'm extraordinarily cautious about that. And I, I fundamentally want the debate, the tone of our conversation across the European nations to start saying fans and players are you know we're we're speaking on the anniversary of Hillsborough. And and the idea that it doesn't matter that just football fans and football players must be permanently expunged from the debate. And therefore, that's all, that's the central plank of the way we must consider how football restarts. I, I agree entirely, Graham. And I think, I think it's important here to go back to how football stopped. And you know, I think I'm right in saying the last game in England was the Atletico Liverpool game, which people rightly question the, the amount of uh, lives that game has cost, because you, you're bringing 3,000-plus people from Spain into Liverpool um, just before the lockdown was brought in. Um, you're before... right, Duncan, and just as a slight point, at a point when Spain had already closed its doors. Yes, and no. you also have another game involving Spanish football. You have uh, Valencia... Um, being forced to go to Milan to play at Atlanta, a game that's been descri- described as a biological bomb in terms of the amount of uh, COVID infection that was spread around both Italy and Spain off the back of it. I believe over 35% of the Valencia first team tested positive for COVID after, I, I think, after I that think, game. I mean, you're right in the percentage, but I think the percentage was to do with team and technical staff. Okay, yeah. But, but the, the the key point I want to make here is that Serie A stopped because the players stopped it. The 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 people who ran the clubs, who ran the league, who make money out of the sport, wanted to keep Serie A playing yeah. behind yeah. closed doors. The reason they had to stop was because the players said, "We're not doing this anymore. Don't treat us like a sack of potatoes." 
yeah. um, that this isn't on. And, and I think I think you're right to identify the the importance of of treating everyone within the sport and everyone around the sport importantly in these situations, rather than the the preoccupation which there seems to be with um, we need to make the money, we need to get the money flow going again. And let's let's find some kind of artificial solution to get the money flow going. So again. we all agree we all agree on that, but we, we should also and, and this is presumably why your podcast has, has flourished. The intelligence of the debate needs to acknowledge the fact that there are no easy choices because although I think it's you know demonstrably true and fair what we're arguing, one it, it sadly doesn't tend to be the general perspective from people who, who have run football during our lifetimes. But two the the the, the the not trite. The simple truth is, if 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 those who, who want to make money again want to play a joker card, they'll say, "Yeah, but people are losing their jobs," and and therefore, I don't think that anybody who's in a position of authority right now has um, simple answers to come up with, nor answers that will please everybody, because for as long as you put the the concept that we've been evincing over the last fifteen minutes forward. It's going to cost people jobs because clubs will increasingly go to the wall or close to the wall, and and that's a fact. And therefore, it it it'd be really. I I know you didn't you didn't come close to saying this, but I haven't. When I was putting forward my argument, hopefully you know articulate and passionately. The fact is that if you if you put a premium on player and fan safety, by automatic definition you're costing certain people their livelihoods and that's a fact in in, in terms of earning and, and being able to support a family or pay their mortgage that's a fact but I think it needs to be something that gets um, get, gets said so that anybody who's who in the months to come wishes to um, in a precipitative way recommence some sort of competitive sport not only football they can't justify it solely on the basis of, well, people need the money. It's not just me. I, I, I'm i not worried about my sponsorship contracts or the, the $100 million that I've paid out for X. This is because people need it. You're like, yeah, we all know that if you put health and safety at a premium and don't make precipitate decisions of when to recommence competitive sport, there are consequences. We all know that. And I think the debate needs to include that so that it can't be appropriated by those who are acting in a either cyclops or greedy manner. And 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 I and I absolutely, hundred percent, do not mean Seferin or Barcelona or Tebas. All I'm saying is, it, it, it's right for UEFA to to build predictive models about how this might be accomplished. But everybody across all the decision-making bodies, because we're now talking about. You know, I think we're still playing football in Belarusia, right? Where, you know, yeah. I I don't know anybody over there, but my my passionate belief about the the safety of the people we're talking about extends to them too. One of their leading politicians said, "We'll be okay because of saunas and vodka." There was a day in which we'd have we'd have chuckled at that, thought, but there'll there'll be people in Belarusia who don't make it through because of that, and I I think they still count as human souls. So uh, all I would ask is that the general debate includes absolutes about safety and about health and about well-being and also includes the fact that if you premium that side of the argument 
by definition, there will be other people who automatically then suffer. We just all have to be grown up and accept that as part of the debate. We will uh, end on a slightly lighter note on the Transfer Window <laughs> podcast, uh, as much as we all enjoyed. Oh, oh, only, only slightly. The, the, out the, the, That's called a Zaska over here. The when, monologue. When, when somebody's been giving it a slap around the face with a wet fish, which is me, obviously. <laughs> no. So that would be called a Zaska. I'm just trying to just some brevity here, that's all. <laughs> um I was going to do Heroes and Villains, but I've been constantly um, being taken by the, the use of Ivan Rakitic's phrase, a sack of potatoes, throughout the <laughs> podcast. And so uh, without your permission, because I don't care, I don't need to ask it, I'm going to ask a quick fire round instead uh, of uh, Ivan Rakitic, gentleman, described himself as not not willing to be treated like a sack of potatoes. By the way, I should say that in Scotland we call that a sack of tatties, which has got a better ring to it. I would like you both to name a player who actually did play like a sack of tatties. <laughs> <laughs> or would have been better being replaced, indeed, by a sack of potatoes in the team. Well, so so good was he. Well, this, okay. isn't, this isn't true of him generally, and I'm certain he's a wonderful guy. Um, but seeing as you and I mentioned this recently on social media, um, Anton Rogan took <laughs> his 1990 Scottish Cup final penalty like a sack of potatoes. Um, so at which point Aberdeen won the Scottish Cup and on the 117th year and one day birthday of the club I love, I think that bears mentioning And If Anton Rogan was in this podcast and you had used the hero-villain slot at the end, He'd have presumably said so. Water rally for introducing tatties to European society. <laughs> no, they are history, geography, and agriculture all in the same. Have you have you ever heard of the great uh, um, avocado famine of, of Ireland of the late nineteenth century? Where all the... I am a, I am aware that our, our our predilection for consuming billions of tons of avocados is causing having caused drought in in Chile and California. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah. So, avocados uber Alice, I say. <laughs> Duncan, any any sacks of tatties in your history think, memory banks? I think, yeah, I think I think when when you whenever you ask me about um, super flops in, in football or, or super sacks of tatties in this particular case, I, I I'm always drawn back to Fernando Torres's um, spell at Chelsea, and um, and if, if we take him as that sack of tatties, um for his... Hold on, hold on. Who wins the corner in Munich in the final that Mata takes it, drop the heads on? Fernando Torres. I Who do guarantees they're through I... camp now and, and, and lets Gary Neville break the sound barrier with his, um, his <laughs> orgasmic screech of delight? Even I just do... for those two moments alone, Duncan. I do remember being in the mix zone after that... Uh, when in Munich um, with a with a very a discontent Fernando Torres um, having not I think he came off the bench in that game wasn't, he did that. wasn't started um, showed... he, he, his position was replaced by a rookie eighteen year old whose first start was in the in the Champions League that season name that player <sighs> hold on a second um, did he not score in the Europa League final yeah he did yeah yeah Gee, there are, there are tatties and there are tatties. It makes him a... Not a he's a very, it's he's, a, very he's expe- a, a very expensive sack of tatties being mm. the main point <laughs> in this one. <laughs> but he did, he did come into the, 
he did come into the mix zone after that game, um, uh, more more focused on complaining about not being picked and uh, making a statement about his discontent at Chelsea, uh, which did not go down very well with uh, with his teammates or the the owner of the club or the manager. Um, given his uh, failure to appreciate the magnitude of the uh, of the victory that had been achieved. But I, I, I think I, I'll stick with Fernando Torres as my Sakatatis in, in this particular uh, transfer window. But Ian, you did tell me who your hero was going to be. Oh, I'm going to mention him. It, it was such a good selection. He does. That, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to mention uh, our, a hero of this week, which is going to send uh, the dandy Catalan into some diatribe about some uh, <laughs> frying pan head politician. I'm sure, but uh, I'm going to mention the anyway. Matty Longstaff, young uh, midfielder at Newcastle United, uh, slightly ironic and certainly um, reflects very badly on Mike Ashley, and that's never a bad thing, as far as I'm concerned. So on the day Mike Ashley gets closer to earning another couple of hundred million profit on his sale of Newcastle United, an owner who's worth £2.3 It turns out that young Matty Logstaff has been paying 30% of his weekly salary to NHS charities for the last three months. Didn't tell anyone about it, didn't boast about it, didn't even, his parents didn't even know until he was short with the money for his bed and uh, dinner. Um, he gets paid 800 Sorry, that's the one. £850 a week that boy gets. Okay, that's quite a lot of money for some people, certainly not in Premier League football terms. And 30% of that he pays to to national health charities. There's a hero for you on a day like today as well. That's very well nominated. That's one of the, certainly the best hero villain I've ever heard in this podcast. The long long staffs are, are absolutely majestic. Hats off to them all. And so, is the answer is the answer Romelu Lukaku? No. Daniel Sturridge. He's n- he's now a left back. Ryan and Bertrand. He, Ryan Bertrand. Yeah, he started that game. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Bertrand played in the final. That's what I'm saying. It was his first start in the Champions League that season. In left midfield, I think. In left Correct. midfield, yeah. Yeah. And Torres was on the bench. That was what particularly irked Torres, who I'm told went around the team hotel after the team was announced. Um, basically, anyone you could see um, cursing a certain coach. He won the corner, which won the final. That's all. Um, uh, Fernando, Fernando, I will defend I'm, I'm you not... to help, mate. Okay. Did I'm you, just waiting. I'm you... waiting for you to defend John Terry with his shin pad celebration then as well. Did he <laughs> miss it? Did he miscontrol it off a Byron defender to win the corner? She is all about what happened, not how it happened. <laughs> lads, lads, if you can't find a bit of Christian generosity in your heart during a pandemic, you never. Indeed, indeed. Let's bring back humanity. Uh, well, as much as we could go on all day talking uh, about Saxatatis, I'm sure um, some people have got other things to do. And therefore, I will draw today's Transfer Window podcast to an end. would love to say gracias to uh, Dandy Catalan and hasta luego. Thank you very Canada, much for all your contributions. And, uh, and to Duncan Castle as well, of course, if you want to continue the debate, we know we love that. Uh, you to do that then please do it on our social media channels which are Twitter Instagram and Facebook uh, at Transfer Podcast uh, Duncan is on at Duncan Castles I'm on at Garbo SG Graham is at Bumper Graham 
uh, you will find him there. And please do, um, in these days, long days of not being able to get out, check out uh, the big interview podcast, which Graham does brilliantly. And uh, there are names even bigger than Graham on that. Uh, I know that's hard to imagine, <laughs> but yeah, I think you will find there's, there are some you may even have heard of. <laughs> Tony Curry, for example, Tony Curry. Tony Curry, one of my favourites. Uh, all right, so we shall uh, be back later in the week with the next Transfer Window podcast. For now, thanks for listening. <laughs>